Consumer experiences, major disruptors in AI tech are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on these issues with leaders who are driving change. I'm Chris Hemphill, VP of Applied AI at Actium Health, and we hope that these stories will help you to create or demand a better future in healthcare. Artificial intelligence, AI. We've all heard the term, and maybe you've even heard it in my job title on the podcast. Perhaps it inspires wild sci-fi fantasies of learning machines, conscious computers, and evil robots seeking to take over the planet, a la the Terminator or Matrix movie franchises. But what is AI really, and what can it do for us? Outside of Hollywood, intelligent machines are not taking over the world, but in fact, AI is already well integrated into many aspects of our daily lives. Most of us are probably unaware of the influence that it has in some of the most important parts of our worlds. Artificial intelligence has infiltrated virtually every industry and become a major component of things like online shopping, commercial advertising, online search engines, your social media accounts, banking, smart home devices, some of the systems in your car, and of course, we can't forget the phone that you're listening to this on. Virtually every business of the future will need to rely on AI in some form or another to stay competitive. According to IBM's 2021 Global AI Adoption Index, nearly three quarters of companies are now using or exploring the use of AI, and that pace is still accelerating. Nearly half of all companies are now reporting accelerated AI rollouts due to the pandemic. AI has allowed us to move faster, smarter, and at a scale that was previously thought impossible. But we're focused on healthcare. Healthcare is supposed to be deeply personal and meaningful. Is there any room for artificial intelligence to play a role in that? Well, let's find out. Maybe I'll start with what artificial intelligence isn't in healthcare in terms of what we're talking about today, right? That's Shital Shah, digital health executive at Wobot and board member here at Actium. Shital has a wealth of experience leading digital transformation at top 10 health systems. We're not here to talk about replacing physicians. We're talking about how do we use massive data sets, though, to find insights and make decisions on what would take humans years to do by themselves. Uh, in our case, we're talking about outreach, right, and, and engagement. So what I wanted to share was let's establish the role for AI in healthcare, right? And if you look at all the research that's out there that's being published at a feverish rate, there's also a flip side of, of not only how healthcare models are changing and the requirements we have on why we engage the community, patients, families, and caregivers, but also the provider side and how much burden we're shifting to them to take on the role of engaging the right people at the right time for the right things. So if we looked at, in the U.S., they say the typical primary care, I think average panel is 2,300. I've seen it go as high as 2,500 patients per PCP. If you just looked at that and you asked a PCP to basically provide all the recommended acute, chronic, and preventative care, care itself, but then also the engagement to get the individual in the door, they would be spending 21.7 hours a day working. Let's settle in for a moment. You basically are asking an individual to provide the acute, the chronic, the preventative care, the anticipatory care ahead of time. And getting, it's just obviously this type of engagement just does not scale. We're sitting on a treasure trove of data that allows us to do things that are 
scale. And I think that's the piece that when we say intelligence, it's, it's at scale. It's at scale on how we personalize the communication, that it has purpose for both the patient, it's relatable uh, to the individual, that they actually will open it and read it, right? Make note of that. Chital focused on AI's role in communication and outreach. It's proactive. It's about forming a relationship. We may use your data to inform what we tell you. And by the way, we're going we're gonna to reach out to you by email or phone or whatever preferred method you have. So if you look at it, we know the ability for providers in a typical model of healthcare to scale engagement is not possible. They're already slammed with that 21 hours a day if they wanted to do everything for everyone. We know that today it's not personalized. If anything, that engagement's absent. And then you look from the periphery and you're starting to see organizations look at, hey, we're, we found the hole that we're going to plug. We're going to form a strong relationship. Communication and outreach. While we constantly hear about AI to scan images or replace doctors, there's remarkably little talk about its role in influencing patient relationships. Maybe Communicator 2 wasn't as catchy a title as Terminator 2? That's a shame because there are people actually doing this in the healthcare space. I spoke with Dave Pavlitz, who at the time led AI-based outreach efforts at Virtua Health, which is a $2 billion health system in New Jersey. Since his hands were on AI-based tools every day, it's interesting to hear his thoughts about how AI and healthcare consumerism combine. In its simplest form, healthcare is really not much different than than retail. Everybody always is like, "Oh, we're you know, it's so much different." You know, I've been I've been outside the healthcare industry. It, it really isn't that much different. Everyone has a need or a want that they want to research, and then they select what they want or who they want to go with. So this is where AI and healthcare marketing has really entered the playing field because consumers have evolved to really expect more. And this is really that Amazon effect that everybody talks about crossing across multiple industries. So it leads to the challenges that, that can be addressed. So the classic model for you know, direct marketing in healthcare has always been, you know, what's good for the goose is, is good for the gander. And the shift has to be made in healthcare to become more personalized, especially in an industry that, you know, for the most part is one of the most you know, empathetic industries out, out there. So, you know, we know how to treat our patients well, but do we really listen to them and get to understand them and put this, you know, persona to them? So what does a day in their life look like? What are their pain points? What do they value most? What are their goals? And especially now in this, you know, in, in this new unprecedented, you know, daily routine is how do we keep them safe when they come back? Now that's a lot of moving parts. So that and what AI does is it enables that personalized targeting and really stops us to stops us from generalizing and puts you know a face to that persona. Artificial intelligence really takes the data that you that you have internally and combines it with really any outside data sources that you have, whether it's demographic, internal data, third party data. And what it does is it produces this this target that you're looking for, and it could be multiple targets. For the sake of this, I just put one here. What it will do is throw it out across your population. So it says, okay, you know, here's this persona, here's who we should be marketing to. They're most likely to utilize our services. And what it does is it stratifies it across there and really does the work that for, for the marketing team to say, this is the segmentation and, and this is the per- persona. And it really changes the way we market. So it takes me over to, you know, this is what the old patient journey looks like. It's very transactional and you know, impersonal. Now imagine how this feels to a, a patient, right? They can be anywhere between 
you know, 24 hours to six weeks to academic medical centers that take up to six months in between these touch points. And, you know, what, what you do now is you would, you would take that, that persona that you've done and you've utilized with, with artificial intelligence. And what you do is you drop that impersonal feeling there, that detachment, you drop that time limit in between there. And what you do is you start building this relationship. That's a really interesting transition. Terms like AI and machine learning sound very cold and impersonal, right? But Dave's focus here is how to use it to be warmer, more personal, and more engaging to patients. But how do we know that this tactic is working? So the smart thing to understand is with, with AI, there's, there's both hard and soft benefits. Those soft benefits are your understanding your consumer and your patient's intent their interest, their engagement levels. And then we start getting into those hard, hard benefits of, you know, conversions and revenue. And then, you know, AI helps us with these personas to be able to target these, these patients. And, you know, the number one success is that we're able to bring them back as a customer again. So what AI is constantly doing to engage that is understanding the content you're sending out, understanding the emails you're sending, understanding who you're targeting, the keywords that they're searching for, the analytics behind what we're sending to them. AI is compiling all that and it's constantly learning to retarget and and continue to target those patients to develop better personalized content, to be able to understand engagement and how people are engaging with your health system. And ultimately for Virtua, what success was for our breast health campaign that we launched in January is we had a 350% increase in mammogram orders versus our control group internally. We see the industry benchmarks by close to, if not over some 300% in some areas of open rate, click through rates and, and form conversions. And this is what I was talking about in the realm of those soft benefits. You're understanding how these certain patients are consuming, are, are engaging with you and you're, and consuming what you're sending out. But the most important thing is we're gaining new insights daily. This was brand new for virtual when we started. So for us, it's understanding that intent, that interest and engagement and constantly learning and being able to utilize that for marketing campaigns in the future. We're still still and always learning. So we're looking at the voice of the customer and what they're providing to us. We're looking at the analytics and the results in the background. And the important thing with AI is that you can always pivot on a dime. So it's always great to hear those those hard benefits of you know these increased orders, the increased revenues, the increased conversions. But it is important to always stress across the organization that there are soft benefits that people may not notice, but keep you connected in the long run. To hear Dave tell it, machine learning can play a powerful role in the nature and quality of patient outreach. In previous episodes, we've explored how important that quality is and the marketer's role in delivering care. To explore this a little bit deeper, let's bring in Christopher Penn. Christopher is the founder of Trust Insights, which delivers data-driven marketing experiences for their clients. He's chief data scientist as well, and he's also a great communicator. Check out his podcast, Marketing Over Coffee, and hear what he had to say on the concept of AI and patient outreach. Data plays a leading role in helping marketing leaders um, earn a seat at the table, but guide the direction of the company. When you think about how you market your organization, if you don't know what's working, you can't fix what's wrong. The, the old adage, you can't manage what you don't measure, is still true, right? No, no amount of cool technology has fixed that, that simple basic fact. And when we look at the role that data plays in marketing of telling us who is interested in our stuff, how are people engaging with us, what are the things that they're telling us through their words, through their actions, through their interactions with us, it gives us tremendous insights into how we should be changing and pivoting. So a real simple example, if you think about the way we look at the customer journey lifecycle in healthcare, 
customer lifetime value actually means the lifetime of that customer, right? <laughs> you know, it's one of the few industries where like, yes, you will literally be with us until you die. And there's so many interactions and data points that are captured that are simply not intelligently used. Think about even if you remove it, you anonymize it, you, you de-identify it completely. Think about just the sheer number of, of data points in an EHR, right? How many interactions has this person had with a provider? Remember when Chital said that healthcare data is a treasure trove? All that data could be part of your marketing if you're using it well and you have permission to use it and you're careful with it to get a pulse for what's happening with your audience, what's happening with your patients in their lives. And one of the really unique things about healthcare marketing is that you can use this data responsibly to guide outcomes, right? You can say, like, hey, we're noticing there's a substantial number of people who are buying like, you know, just garbage fast food and it's going up in this region. We know in 20 years time, we're going to have a major cardiovascular problem in this, in this area if this does not change, if these behaviors don't change. So if you have that data, you can start to help guide and say, hey, you know what? This looks like a food desert. We need to fix this. How can we use marketing's power to communicate with people? These are better choices or worse choices you can make if you want to see your grandkids you know, graduate college. So we understand the data space and we can admire the data and it's super interesting insights. But interesting isn't good enough in healthcare. How do we get to a point where this data drives actions? It depends on your business model because one of the things that is changing and is on people's minds in healthcare is how do we get away from treating illness to treating wellness, right? How do we apply more preventative measures so that we're, we're seeing fewer things like, you know, massive cardiac events and strokes and stuff. And that requires realigning your data to understand and be able to forecast and predict beforehand, hey, these are some likely things. If you do, you know, basic propensity score modeling on data around like the top 20 conditions, you can get a pretty good predictive perspective. Like, hey, we know that obesity is a pretty big problem, you know, not just in, in America, but planet-wide. We know cardiac disease kills, you know, almost more people than I think almost anything else. We know that COVID-19 is the number three killer in the United States, right? Marketing technology has the ability to offer some benefits to say like, here, let's help you build systems that can process the data. Let's create storage engines that can analyze it. Let's create machine learning models that can get through the data faster so that you can start looking at the the mathematics underneath it and figure out well, these are the trends, these are the patterns. Right now, marketers don't have that. Right now, marketers have big piles of data and no way to handle it. So there's a bunch of different things. And over the next year or two, uh, we're going to see a lot more of uh, that data get more used, better used, and the technology supporting it mature. This is where fun stuff comes in, like the ability for AI to write copy for you. The generation of text is, comes from OpenAI's GPT models, which is a pre-trained transformers. These are big, big, big language models that create language. One of the most powerful uses of them right now is in question and answer scenarios. So Right now, a lot of companies have tried with differing degrees of success to create conversational chatbots, things that offer customer service experiences and things on websites. And they have uniformly been lackluster. Some of the newer ones that are using GPT-2 and GPT-3 are creating legitimately lifelike interaction capabilities, ones that you would be hard-pressed after uh, some time interacting with them to not know that they are, there isn't a human actually behind the scenes you know, guiding it. They're trained amazingly. There's some fascinating applications for this for things like behavioral health, particularly in a pandemic. We have a lot of people who are, you know, 
suffering from significant mental health impairments from what's happening, what's necessary to keep people alive. These technologies are really, really interesting. We're not kidding here. We grew up told that AI probably wouldn't have much use in fields that required creativity, fields like writing and music. But right now we're seeing that being proven wrong. Chris dug deeper on models and tools that are available right now and assist in the generation of creative itself. If you think about it, it could give you substantially better marketing content because now instead of having to get subject matter experts to digest down a 20-page paper, you can have a machine give you the one-paragraph summary. And that's what goes in your hospital newsletter, right? Your, your hospital newsletter can be a roundup of the very best content scored by whatever metrics you have that you use for it, but summarized by machines to be relevant so that your stuff that you're publishing all the time is always the best of what's out there. That is, is a substantial advantage. We have a project right now for one of the hospitals in the nation where we're curating content for them to help them assemble their, their newsletter and their social media content. You know, and, and we ship them files and like, here's the best of the best that's out there that we've been able to identify with machine learning. And the, it a it saves them from spending forty to eighty hours a month, you know, curating this content. And B, it's the stuff that performed well already. So we know this this is the good stuff, and now it's just a question of getting it packaged up for them. These types of technologies, this is not theoretical. This is something that you can go and try right now on your own and play with it. Play with all the different settings. So what's happening? is that these technologies keep getting better and better and better until you get to a point where the machines will be able to generate credible content. One of the challenges that is going to be a big problem for many marketers is there will be a huge gulf between the haves and the have-nots. Not in terms of finances, but in terms of who can use technology and who can't. Because if you are a three-person marketing team in a market and you've got another three-person marketing team that has AI capabilities, they're going to create 100, 200, 1,000 times more content than you will. They will be able to just saturate an area, a field, and you won't be able to, to deal with that. If you're a healthcare marketer or in marketing or in engagement in general, keep an eye on content generation. It might not be much right now, but over time, you're going to be able to create content and connect with your audiences much faster. However, when it comes to engaging your patients, the outreach needs to be smarter, too. Sometimes I think when we use the word patient engagement, what we really mean is you do what I tell you to do. You're hearing from Dr. John Glasser. Glasser is an EMR pioneer who's been CEO of Siemens Healthcare, CIO at Partners Health, and is currently executive in residence at Harvard Medical School. I recently spoke with Dr. Glasser about the need for intelligence-oriented experiences within healthcare instead of our typical transaction-based. If you don't do what I tell you, you're not engaged. So, man, I'm fine being overweight, okay? I, you know, you can tell me all you want. I said, well, you're not engaged. I'm perfectly engaged, man. I just don't want to do what you're telling me to do. So I think there is the learning what will work and not. And, and it's like a right. kid. When you're raising a teenage kid. There's only so much you can they'll do at a moment in time. You know, they've got to be ready for certain messages, et cetera. So you do what you can. And sometimes it's because they're, they're not motivated. Sometimes they're motivated, but they just can't. They don't have, they're poor. They don't have the copay. They say, you want to walk 10,000 steps yeah but I'm in a high crime neighborhood. I'm afraid. You know, we continue to view, you know, your and my health as a health, as a medical care problem rather than a health care problem or health. You know, and so we, we talk about, geez, let's keep you healthy and, you know, your weight in the right place. And if you got diabetes managing, et cetera. It's interesting to me is as a country per capita, we spend more on medical care than any other developed country. 
On the other hand, we spend less per capita than any other developed country on what we call social care, you know, make sure people are housed and fed, et cetera. And when you add them up together, we're right, to, and you add the social and the medical care, we're right in the middle of all the other countries. So we are still way skewed in terms of medical care relative and hence the sort of interest in social determinants all of a sudden. But anyway, I think, Chris, there's plenty of bad habits. Payment's a bad habit, the sort of view of health as being AKA medical care, which it isn't. We still manage to screw up implementations and we still manage to pave cow paths, you know, when we really ought to be taking advantage of the technology. So what needs to happen to create better consumer and patient experiences? If you look at healthcare, you know, the old fee-for-service fragmented healthcare system, we had this called dominant design called the electronic health record. It reflected the moment, you know, let's get the billing done and let's make sure we do a variety of transactions, this, that, and the other, but it reflected the moment. But if we're shifting to this new business model, this model of value-based care and where we keep you healthy and where we manage you across the continuum, et cetera, then you say the dominant design of the core IT systems has to change as well. And they say, well, okay, if the, how does the EHR have to change then? If we're going into a new dominant design, what does it look like? But, well, I mean, there's probably two ways. You know, one is, since I've been in this field for 35 years, it's always been the record, automated medical record, computerized patient record, the electronic medical record, the electronic health record, the personal health. We always record was the noun, you know, <laughs> that we had in these kinds of things here. Well, you know, in the years to come, you can have the best record on the planet, but that doesn't mean you're going to do well in value-based care. It doesn't mean your care is consistent. It doesn't mean it's any good. It doesn't mean it's safe at all. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. What will matter is whether I've got a plan. I've got a plan to keep Chris healthy. John continued by sharing what this plan may look like. I got a plan to keep John healthy. And if John needs his hip replaced, I got a plan to handle that. And if John gets diabetes, I got a plan. And if I can get a plan for John and manage to that plan and get the outcomes, that will help me. So the focus, we always have a record. You always need that. It has to shift from automating a record to automating plans because you'll have to with a new business model. And then the second part of that was, you know, well, you know, when I was an early CIO, what we were doing, introducing the EHR, was automating paper transactions. So, you know, you retrieve results, you wrote orders, you know, you documented and we took paper away, we gave you a computer instead. That's great. And we still have work to do there because it's, you know, too many clicks and not usable, etc. But even if we were flawless at that, that doesn't mean you're going to do well in this new business model. You got to have intelligence, which is guiding the clinician's decisions and the patient's decision. And also looking at the data say, golly, treatment A is better than treatment B or the drugs hurting people. And even intelligence that shapes the interaction where the machine says, I know who you are. I know what you're trying to do. I'm going to present data to you that is most relevant here. So it will be moving from a transaction to an intelligence you know, orientation, et cetera. Still have transactions, et cetera. So those two fundamental changes will occur to, will need to occur. Because of the shift in the business model, the new dominant design has to have those. So there's a clear need for more intelligent systems, for systems to better understand patients. But what's next is that action space I was talking about earlier. To dig in to how close we can get to precision medicine, I spoke with Dr. Bill Hirsch. Bill is the professor and chair of the Department of Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology at OHSU. In short, this focuses heavily on driving actions and finding information using data science. I think, uh, you know, a challenge sometimes is, you know, is to motivate people to take care of their health, you know, especially when they're still healthy and haven't developed. 
any illness. I think probably looking for innovative ways of communicating to get people to change behavior to, you know, simple things, you know, just, just eating a reasonably healthy diet, exercise, those sorts of things that help to uh, maintain their health. But, you know, people will get sick either, you know, because unfortunately the human body, over, over especially as one gets older, um, will develop things. But getting people to, especially illnesses that have a, you know, lifestyle or behavioral component of getting information to people so they can undertake, you know, changes that, that will be beneficial to their health. I'm not an expert in marketing and the best ways to communicate with people, but certainly having information. So knowing people who might, knowing, identifying who might be amenable to good sorts of messaging around improving their health is, is an important thing. I think probably the lowest hanging fruit, you know, is people who have chronic illnesses that, you know, have a behavioral component and by behavioral, you know, things like, you know, diabetes, hypertension, you know, things that can be treated, you know, they may still need medical treatment, but we certainly know that, you know, for example, a person who has type two diabetes because they're overweight, you know, you can make a lot of headway by them losing weight, you know, the diabetes may or may not completely go away, but it will probably be, you know, better for their health. And, and, you know, things like diet, exercise, quitting smoking, things like that are important things. As time goes on and we learn this whole notion of precision medicine, as we learn about genetic variations and so forth that may predispose people to higher risk of certain diseases, you know, being able to find that information to, to um, help people out. That, that does, though, you, you mentioned the word data governance and, you know, even some of the larger concerns about data and privacy and so forth. You know, what, what are you going to do with that information? You know that I'm predisposed to some rare disease or something like that. I think we need to be careful and I, I, I think we need to be thoughtful in how we use data, you know, make sure that doesn't have unintended consequences of, of learning that someone might be at risk for this illness and they may have more difficulty getting health insurance or something like that. Bill then went in to focus on how other industries use AI to drive intended actions. I think a lot of the, the technology companies, I'm sure that, um, you know, I've ended up buying things on Amazon that I didn't intend to buy because they suggested it would be a good idea. I'm sure there's some research going on behind the scenes that's, you know, do we show them this product or that product? And, and, and healthcare has been slow to adopt that. I mean, healthcare maybe unfortunately, you know, has had this, um, if we build it, they will come attitude, but not looking at, um, you know, what, what are the best ways, you know, to get everyone who should have a flu shot to actually show up and get one, you know, for managing chronic illnesses, you know, what, what are the best approaches to, you know, keep someone's blood sugar, blood pressure in the normal range, their weight in the normal range, and, you know, testing different approaches. I think probably the main thing would be the definition of informatics. You, you know, it, it, informatics is about in information technology, but it's more about the information than the technology and making sure that what we do with the information benefits people. And so, you know, I think that's the focus. And and, and so, yeah, you, you certainly need to know a lot about the technology and the science behind informatics. But but at the at the end of the day, the focus of it should be the, the benefit that it provides to people, whether it's patients, healthcare providers, healthcare systems, and so forth. So let's dig even deeper. What does healthcare informatics and AI have in common with the way it's being done in other industries? 
in the informatics field, we sometimes talk about banking, you know, back in the day when I used to travel to far flung places, hopefully will again in the future, people always amazed, you know, you land in Singapore and the first thing you do is you take your ATM card from your local bank and stick it into an ATM and pull out Singapore dollars. Part of the reason why that system is successful, I mean, well, one, I think we, we can't overdo the analogy too much because, I mean, healthcare is actually more, the, the data of healthcare is a lot more complicated than banking. Banking is, you know, mostly numbers. I think the reason why banking works really well is everyone, everyone makes a little money along the supply chain. You know, when I plug my local bank's card into the machine, that bank that owns that machine makes a little money. You know, my bank makes a little money and it's convenience for me. And, you know, again, I, you know, healthcare sometimes has, has a different model than that. You know, so I think we can, you know, hopefully as we move more into, you know, population health and, and getting paying for healthcare with some component of, you know, doing the right thing, immunizing everyone, patients with chronic illness, getting things under control will help. And, it might be more a function of the business model than the technology. I mean, that you know, in many ways, healthcare has been slow to take up information technology, but also because I don't know that that the financial incentives there. Healthcare is not slow to take up technology. There's a ton of technology in healthcare, and you know, in fact, sometimes there is overuse of medical technology because there's incentive to use it and so forth. So you know, I, I think it too depends on the business model. One of the most powerful points Dr. Hirsch makes: no matter what technology is available. Healthcare has an incentive problem. When I say the word incentive, who do you think of? Well, incentive is a behavioral economist's favorite word. So we brought in healthcare behavioral economist, Dr. Matt Sabolsky. His background sits at a unique intersect, behavioral economics, healthcare finance, and healthcare administration. Plus, he's done work with companies like Deloitte and Optum. If we're discussing AI and healthcare patient engagement, let's talk about the bigger picture on where incentives align and what kinds of outcomes to expect. Machine learning and AI looks like a black box to people on the outside. We're always on this sort of euphemism treadmill of tech. Oh, big data, that's our savior. So when you think about something like AI and machine learning, that's hard for a potential client or a consumer to even understand. You have to explain why it's even needed, right? What's the problem that it's trying to solve? Well, the problem is, especially in healthcare, with remote devices, with hearables, with social interaction that we have, with now secure text messaging that's ongoing, uh, and more, there is an incomprehensible amount of data, not only from the consumer, but from laboratory devices, inpatient use case care, even glucometers from Livongo and Teladoc, that has to be understood. And why does it have to be understood? Well, the more of this sort of raw data that we get and the fewer humans we have to process it, the more questions we don't have answers. Let me give you a case in point. Walmart, we've all been there. Walmart figured out a long time ago, and by the way, they have a huge data center. In fact, I don't know if it still is the case, but it's like 11 times larger than the IRS's data center. It's always processing information that uh, about consumers and pricing, where things are in their stores. They even go as far as to say something, a discovery they figured out using machine learning and AI. Hurricane in the Gulf at their at their southeastern Walmarts, if they ship frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts and ever-ready flashlights or flashlights with batteries in them, they'll liquidate each of those cases once a week with those as long as there's a hurricane in the Gulf. They didn't figure that out without taking tons and tons of betas and trying to understand what is all this noise telling. So healthcare is in that place now more than we've ever been before 
because we don't just have a one-way data exchange between EMR and insurer. You've got third-party data exchanges happening through an EMR that are incorporating devices in the, in the hospital, devices at home, patient interaction with tools, text messages, all those things. You're looking at maybe nine, ten times the amount of data from search alone that something like voice-first technologies are adding to the mix of this. So a tool like what you all are creating has to exist to understand what the needs of the patients are or what the patients are doing when they're interacting with their own care. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the mind of a healthcare behavioral economist. What technologies have Matt excited? Remote connection. So this idea that with consent from a patient that I will have these nodes of access that are all the time on. And I know for the people who are really focused on privacy out there, that is absolutely nightmare fuel to hear that something would be connected to you all the time. But uh, if you look at things like, I think it's called Hoop, you have Amazon's Halo, which is a wearable, and even just the smart speaker at home and voice tech interactions has got me really, really excited because it's something that can happen all the time and we're not even paying attention to it. And so we can remove this effect of observation. Like, I'm not changing my behavior anymore because someone's observing me or I know I'm being heard. I've been habituated. I've got the gateway drug and a smart speaker in my house that eventually makes me focus on my mobile as my primary device or my wearable, if I have it on, I don't have it on today, where I'm interacting with things like my vital signs, if I'm taking my meds or not, my sleep, my weight, my blood pressure. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So these passive observational tool sets, one of the most, is really important. One of the most exciting things that I saw was at Carnegie Mellon, uh, a mentor of mine there, Joe Marks, who's just a brilliant mind, He's a professor there in the machine learning department. I think he's the chair, if I'm not mistaken. He and I were at a, a talk at Carnegie Mellon where there was a grad student talking about having an audio listening device in the home, similar that you could put into a smart speaker. It's a piece of tech. They could tell you within really, really close proximity what appliance was running in your house, what model it was, and maybe how old it was. It also knew it could listen closely and know if the toilet was flushed, how many liters was flushed, and knew the difference between a chicken bag being opened and a canvas bag being opened. So consider that technology along with the other passive sort of hearables, wearables, smart speakers that are in the home. That's got me super duper excited. Why? If someone has hypertension, you know how much they're urinating a day. I know it's a little bit, a little, you know, it's clinical to talk about that here. You know if someone's eating in the middle of the night or when they're finishing dinner. You know when the stove's on or off. You know when they have water or they're opening up a pop bottle or a carbonated drink. And in some cases, that's really important. Or more importantly, you can hear and listen. Is someone taking their medicine? or not, even if they don't interact with the message that says, hey, you take your medicine today. That, because of the law of least effort, can give patients the sense, because of the interaction we can give them based on tools that y'all are creating, a sense that they're being really cared for well. Now that placebo effect alone of someone cares about me, even if it's done through machine learning and AI and all kinds of relational data sets on the outside of their lives, can give someone a lot of hope and a lot of optimism, but not only that, we can reduce the variance of exacerbation in chronic conditions and long-term care. Now imagine that, the quality of life you get from that, the cost savings from that, the longitudinal life expectancy you see from that, by keeping people at work and keeping people contributing to their communities, which in aggregate makes the United States, the world, a much better, healthier place to live, using that long tail of supply that we can all get healthcare without it being a big, huge burden 
because we have so many more people in the market all of a sudden engaging it. And, and we have machines and we have data science helping them work. So that's a fascinating look at all kinds of different things that remote technology and wearables will help us do. But at the same time, with great technology comes great responsibility. I, th- I think that was the quote from Uncle Ben. But we're trying to use algorithms to help people make better decisions about their lives. But at the same time, there's a potential for data science to be exploitative. We've seen it play out in other industries. How can healthcare avoid these types of trappings? When you look at new tech, there's always this sort of ethical roar that starts to rise off in the distance about what's going to happen. And we've seen that in the history of science. I mean, from laboratory, biomedical sciences, IVF, there is all kinds, even stem cells, utilizing stem cells. I mean, there's some hubbub even right now about Regeneron's tool, right, and how they've developed that. So I think there's always going to be sort of this ethical roar you hear when it comes to new tech, even if it's non-laboratory science or medical science. I mean, even technologies that are optimizing social connectedness obviously have been part of large controversies lately. And they should have a spectrum of, of experts and professionals and legislative bodies kind of monitoring what that sort of impact is on uh, the human population, the social population, because it can cause some problems. But it also, I think, what outweighs that is the benefit you get out of it. Healthcare is no stranger to controversies when it comes to ethics. There's an entire bevy of faculty that study it alone. I have a master's in behavioral, uh, sorry, in biomedical ethics and did that on my way through other other training. Uh, It was a fascinating time. But what I'll tell you is that medicine and healthcare, I think amongst many industries, really does look heavily upon doing the right thing, doing what's good. The chief aim of medicine is doing good, right? That's the bottom line. So as much as this could be used in a sort of negative, nasty way, my opinion is it won't win moral constructs that are the norm. Healthcare has that a priori. You know, before you introduce new tech into healthcare, there is a there is an ethical construct that exists already. And I think that in cases like new tech, voice tech, AI, machine learning, taking private data sets to learn about human behavior, uh, we take great links to protect that in healthcare. And if you didn't, it would it would really kill the market. And what should organizations and healthcare leaders think about when it comes to how to make sure that the new technology actually gets the adoption that it needs, actually gets people to use it long-term? This is a great question. I get this one in variance a lot, Chris, so I'm, I'm glad you asked me, but uh, the two things that come to mind here are convenience and lowering barriers. If you're in a position as a patient and your health delivery system, insurer, whatever entity you're interacting with, offers you something that saves energy or reduces your effort, you're likely to adopt it. Humans love convenience. Americans love convenience. Let's look at our look at our packaging systems at the grocery store, for example, or even just fast food. That's what health systems need to look at. Is this convenient for the patient or for us? Does it lower barriers to action? Those two things go a very, very long way. And I would say evaluating any new tech, any adoption, any new relationship with a tech firm, those are the two things you have to look at alone. Because without that, it's no good. It's like having the pill that stays in the pill cabinet. You don't use it. And these things have to be utilized. A lot of tech firms struggle with with activation of a product when someone has it. So if someone gets your product and they don't use it and it's not active, that's a problem. It's not the product problem, it's the way you designed it. Because you haven't designed it in a way that reduces the barrier to using it. This is why we have the advent of badges, for example, on the Apple iPhone. 
or you can even interact now inside a notification instead of going to the app itself. These are all examples of making something very easy to use and reducing the human effort. Remember, one of the principles of behavioral economics is the law of least effort. So if you can look at it that way, whether it be an organization as a person who's, who's purchasing this use case, or whether it be a patient who you're trying to get complete uh, compliance out of for either uh, a pill, an exercise, or even just a sleep schedule, you have to look at the law of least effort. Fascinating overview from Matt. Matt actually heads up the Voice of Healthcare podcast, and we'll link to that in the show notes if you're looking for more. So when exploring AI and patient engagement, we wanted to look at what's available today, what use cases are being used, but underappreciated in general. But it still begs the question of what does the future hold and ultimately where are things going? Let's take it back to Chital Shah. I think if you're in the business today of patient engagement and outreach, it's the best time to be in this. Because if you look at the last decade, right, we spent the last decade on getting data digital, right? Going from paper charts to EHR through meaningful use, et cetera. Whole struggle there on what it introduced into the environment, but we're here. We have enough context about an individual. Now we went through this sort of second phase, I would say, which is a lot of platforms spewed the 360, right? Let's get all the data in one spot so now we can do something with it. I think we're at this third phase now, which is the action side, the patient engagement side. And it is now data-informed, proactive, personalized outreach. I think the struggle is going to be how do you take that 360 of that consumer or that multiple 360s of a household and how do you distill it down to what is the right thing to engage them on and what is the threshold to start acting? What is the value of that action? I think it requires an organization to start looking at values of opportunities. It almost requires you to have in healthcare a product mindset right? Like how many times are we on Amazon or Netflix or the like and them suggesting something or nudging us? I think the world of patient outreach and patient engagement is going to now be, is basically they will be the orchestration engine for all the siloed needs that different teams have and sort of be the conduit to engage members or patients on. But it it does require a, a rethink about who is the, I hate to use the word owner of the relationship, but who is the team and what are the technology elements that help drive the relationship? Because I don't think lifetime value is sort of a, a one-time thing that you achieve once the first encounter happens. It You got to put something into the relationship and that's to get that lifetime value. And I think that's where, I actually think that's where AI has its greatest potential because instead of being another tool that provides burnout, that just burns teams out, AI is informing us what to do when from a relationship perspective. And I think that is probably what organizations need to start thinking about now. As we've heard on today's episode, healthcare is using AI and machine learning, many other technologies to help improve existing processes and create new ones as well. From analyzing massive amounts of data and finding hidden patterns to determining actions and journey steps for patients. As healthcare leaders explore and examine these use cases and what makes a best fit for their health system, They'll need new skills and new ways of understanding some of the pitfalls and challenges of bad AI strategy. We'll link to some helpers for that in the show notes. If there's anything to take away from this, you've heard from people who develop AI algorithms, from people who are the end users of those, and from other folks who employ them for strategic ends. We hope 
that from hearing from all of these people, we kind of dissect that word artificial intelligence. Remember, the root word of artificial is art. And art requires human involvement, attention, and care. That care comes from multiple sides. It needs to come from the end users and also the creators of the algorithm. They need to understand the human context of what kinds of decisions will be made. That same kind of care also needs to come from the healthcare leaders who are employing AI to help make patient experiences better. Whether you're creating AI, making decisions about it, or influencing decisions about it, the future of AI depends on you. Thanks again for tuning into Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, subscribe to our newsletter on HelloHealthcare.com or join us for our weekly sessions on LinkedIn. Thanks, and when we see you next time, hello. Hello.